Kia ora, e hoama. Um, it is hoama. It's, um, it's kind of funny how everybody sided to the, to the glass, right? It's kind of attracted to the glass. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Um, my name is Rem Kourabla. I'm the director of Artspace Aotearoa on Karangahapi Road. Um, and I'm really super excited about uh, this um, uh, one and a half hours that we're going to have here because I'm joined with amazing uh, colleagues, um, probably um, one of the most exciting colleagues that we have. Um, and um, <laughs> um, it's going to be funny as well. It's going to be funny as well, I hope. We're going to have a funny, funny, funny chat. <laughs> Expectations. <laughs> Um, so, uh, this, this, these series of talks, we have three talks that, um, that we organize as part of Ngatahi. Ngatahi is a group of public art galleries in, in um, Aotearoa, in Tamaki, Makauro, I do have to say. Uh, we have also a stand downstairs where we sell uh, uh, amazing books, um, which is a project by Judy uh, Miller, although there's not many available anymore, is there, Cameron? I think there's maybe four or five left, yeah, or ten left, yeah. Um, so uh, this is the first uh, talk uh, of three and um, how I've designed it is pretty simple. So the title, as you see, is a base of people uh, which I really hope that we can talk. The idea is we talk very freely and it's all about embodied experience. And what I really wanted to do is um, uh, bring colleagues together that can speculate together with me on, on a couple of very kind of simple um, simple topics really and the first one is around internationality um, let's not mention COVID so um, which I just did uh, because of course when you talk about internationality that's one of the things that is always uh, always comes up first um, but I think it's more interesting to to talk around what what can be um, the demands put on contemporary art and artists and um, curators if we talk about opening up um, um, back to the world in a way. Uh, and I wanted to really um, talk with, with, with these people uh, on, and speculate sort of publicly on what that might uh, mean. Um, today then I've, I've asked Joanna Gordon-Smith to um, to lead the panel, um, so she will take over uh, from me uh, shortly, and then um, she will uh, she will question the speakers. And we have also Kimberly Morton joining us uh, from Melbourne, and we hope that um, uh, that that will all work. Oh, you'll see her on the screen, of course. Hopefully, that will all work. So bear with us on a technological uh, uh, aspect. So yeah, but at least then we can we can have internationality on our screens, right? Although not in real life. So, uh, um, thank you so much for, for Attention visitors. Yep. The oh. first talk of the 2021 oh. Talks program, okay. A Base of People, is now on in the mezzanine level of the cloud. Okay. That's the Talks program, A Base of People, on the mezzanine level. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, that's, uh, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice, yeah. Um, so come back tomorrow as well, same time, same channel uh, tomorrow. Uh, we'll be recording these sessions, so I hope that they'll also be available um, later. Uh, last but not least, really thanks, of course, also towards um, Stephanie and Haley, uh, Amazing Art Fair team, um, and the whole Ngatahi uh, uh, group as well. So uh, without further ado, 
Joanna, I'll, I'll leave you to it and I'll try to sit still here. Tala <laughs> uh, Falava. Uh, my name is Joanna Gordon Smith. Um, I'm an arts writer and curator. I'm Samoan from the villages of Leawa'a and Faleula on my mum's side and English on my dad's side. Um, but I was born and raised here in Aotearoa. And currently I work as the curator Māori Pacific at Pātaka Ara Museum and am the assistant curator uh, for Yuki Kihara Aotearoa New Zealand at the 59th Venice Biennale. Um, and I'm really super excited to be here today and I'm super happy to see you all gather to join us. Um, and I do want to acknowledge that we are gathering together on uh, Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke land. Um, and I want to also acknowledge and thank the Auckland Art Fair and Ngātahi and especially you, Remco, for bringing this panel together, which is a very fierce panel. And I'm looking forward to hearing you all speak, all the expectations and hype. <laughs> um, so the topic that we've been given to discuss today is a new imagination on internationality and hopefully over the course of the next hour or so we'll work out what that means to each of us. Um, but I do think that there's an implicit indigenous within that topic um, and so I'm really stoked to be joined by three um, panellists who I think are redefining what's possible and what pathways are open for our indigenous artists. So very much looking forward to hearing you all today. Um, yeah, hopefully the, the course of this conversation is very frank and informal and we really do, rather than uh, waiting for Q&As at the end of the session, we're quite welcoming of questions throughout our conversation. So if anyone has a hot question or not hot question, please feel free to pipe in. Um, but before we continue, if I could ask each of our panellists to introduce yourselves and if I could start with you, Tim. Uh, kia ora koutou. Uh, my name's Tim Melville. Um, I whakapapa to Tiarawa and Tiatiawa. Uh, I, I have a stand down here in the fair and it's quite weird to have got to this point because I, I lived in London for a long time, for about 20 years, and I came back in 2005 uh, wanting to do something in the art world but not knowing how and kind of how do you, how do you get in? So you know, opening your own gallery is kind of the nuclear option, but here I am. Um, I, I've found um, the, the experience has been amazing. I've sort of found out who I am through the process of having my gallery for this length of time. It's like 14 years now. Um, and I've grown into this role that I am hoping to, I'm hoping to continue doing, you know, representing Māori artists and Pacific artists uh, in a way that we feel comfortable with. Um, and it's, the art world is tough, you know? So um, I want uh, the manaakitanga that can, can help our artists is something that I, I'm, I'm keen to go forward with. I think that's all I want to say for now. Yeah, totally hmm. fine, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, my name is Emma Tavola. Um, it's an honor to sit next to Tim Melville. Um, I've been a fan as, a, as an artist and a curator of Tim Melville's work as a gallerist uh, for a long time, from every form that your gallery has taken. Um, I've been working as an artist curator since 2005 here in Auckland, focused on the area of Manukau City, South Auckland. Um, I work predominantly with contemporary Pacific artists uh, or artists who have a relationship to South Auckland or, and a relationship to the Moana Oceania region. Um, 
So yes, I am Fijian. Um, paternalistically, maternalistically, I am a fifth generation Pakeha New Zealand settler. Um, and yes, it's it's an honor to be here. I run a gallery called Vonilangi Vol, which was established in 2019, and I sit in the space between uh, being a dealer, um, being an advocate, uh, a hustler, and um, but I think basically I just try to make my practice as, a, as an art producer um, work with being a mum, <laughs> and that's my main priority. So uh, yes, I relocated my gallery as a result of COVID, as impact on the world last year. So uh, in October, I, I reopened a space in my renovated garage in South Auckland. Uh, and we run exhibitions and hold interesting events uh, in a garden in Papatoitoi, COVID Central. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You can hold on to that mic. Okay. <laughs> Kimberly, <Yeah>. my mic. <laughs> Kim, um, could you introduce yourself as? Sure. Um, hi, everyone. Um, it's kind of weird. I'm, I'm just looking at the panel, so I have no idea who's in the audience. But um, my name's Kimberly. Uh, I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of uh, what we know now as Melbourne. Um, but I'm a Yorta Yorta woman, so my people are from northeast of Victoria um, in the south of Australia. Um, I am a curator and, and writer. I work for um, Museums Victoria, so I'm the Senior Curator for Southeastern Aboriginal Collections for Museums Victoria, and I'm also uh, Artistic Associate for Rising Festival, which is the Melbourne International Arts Festival. Um, so I have a practice that, that sits sort of at the intersection of, of contemporary uh, First Peoples art uh, and also uh, museology and, and the archive, so I'm, I'm really interested in connecting um, my mob and, and communities into, into the museum, into our cultural heritage and, and ancestral belongings that are within the collections there, but also working with artists um, in, in the space of culture, I guess. Um, so that's me. Um, I um, do sort of lots of other things. I, I, I sit, you know, both within um, an independent practice of, of contemporary art and curatorial writing as well. Um, and don't like to be defined by the institutions that I work for either. So yeah. that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> awesome, thank you guys. Um, I thought rather than kind of uh, tackle this term internationality head on, it might be um, good to chat a little bit more about where we locate our practices locally. Um, because even though Kim's mentioned that she doesn't like to be defined by the institutions, you're all working in quite particular types of art spaces um, and very specific geographies. So I just wondered if you could talk about what significance locality has on the way that you work and the way that you work with Indigenous artists, or is it not such a determining factor? Like, what, what is the uh, impact of that locality on the way that you work? Uh, Tim, if I could start with you again. You're sitting to my right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll start. I mean, that's that's an interesting question because you know, locality is you know, do you mean just where your gallery is, or do you mean the country that you're working in, or do you mean you know the region that we're in? But for me, the particularly with my relationship with the Aboriginal artists that I work with, I'm interested in how their attitude to 
um, country relates so closely to Māori attitudes toward whenua and the same in the Pacific. It's, it's that idea of um, custodianship of, of land and looking after it for the future and about the concept of being a, you know, a moment between two eternities. We're just here to look after it for now. That indigenous cultures share, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, and through the Pacific, well, th everywhere. Um, and so in terms of locality, you know, that those attitudes are run throughout. But, you know, one's gallery could be anywhere, even Papatoitoi. <laughs> That's such an Auckland Central thing to say. <laughs> uh, yes, um, locality has been the ground stone of my practice. So uh, when I moved to Aotearoa, I moved to... First of all, Mission Bay, uh, to stay with some friends in their literal wardrobe. Uh, and then I moved to Otara. And so Otara, um, I moved there when I was 19 years old. And, and Otara feels like the Pacific. And it felt so connected to home. And I started to, uh, well, I did my undergraduate degree in Otara. And so you spend four years in what was the old Bluebird Chippy factory, in a factory in an Otara industrial subdivision studying fine art, and you walk out the door and the fine art school is next door to SIFs and across the road from factory shops, and, and you walk down the road and you realize that you can only see Pacific Island people, and, and you hear our laughter, and I think in Otara the population is something like 40% under the age of 21. So it's, a, it's just a completely different landscape, and trying to connect being a practicing artist, being a studying art to that environment became the critical uh, question for me. How do we connect those things? So um, I think my work began when I was art school because it was uh, trying to create the language to share a value system that we as Pacific Māori students studying art in Ōtara needed to not feel like we were uh, on a different planet. Um, and so I started curating as a necessary function of just trying to um, be relevant within that locality. Uh, and so South Auckland became this place that I responded to in my curatorial work and in my art practice. And so it made sense that uh, my first job out of art school was with the council. Um, and I started uh, Fresh Gallery Ōtara was the first facility I managed and um, understanding, I think, curating as a service, as a community service within the scope of community development was my uh, foundation for my practice because um, I think I found my politics, A, in a paid job yeah. uh, and B, in this wonderful space where uh, you could create programming and on the first day of the new financial year, your budget just replenished. <laughs> it was an incredibly growthful space, you know. Uh, Nigel Burrell and I were both working in that arena and it was just very empowering and inspiring uh, to think that we could create projects for our communities, in our communities, and um, be resourced to do it. Uh, this was the world pre-global financial crisis, so um, we did have healthy budgets and I think, you know, the context as well as Monaco City Council, uh, this is a side note, but basically when the Auckland Airport was built, 
all the regional councils of the Auckland region sold their shares apart from Manukau City Council. So the dividends from Auckland Airport being in Mangere actually funded uh, the arts programming and the facilities that we have in South Auckland. So we have this wonderful landscape where every single suburb has got their own arts centre with their own programming. Uh, and we had a really robust arts and culture landscape. So um, yeah, my, I, I owe my practice to South Auckland. Uh, and so as a Pacific Islander, that role of being a public servant became very aligned with who I am as well, because service is something that uh, is ingrained in us. Um, and so my curatorial practice sort of became a, this, this service. And I think it sort of turned into how do we use art to help us as a community reflect on who we are and stimulate dialogue to help us grow and evolve in good ways. So um, yeah, locality is incredibly important. Now where my gallery is, uh, being in a domestic residential setting, that's really changed the tone as well. So um, it's been, yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Kim, did you want to add anything onto that question about the impact of locality on the way that you work? Yeah. Um, I suppose, you know, I think Timmy sort of touched on, I think, um, that connection to country, you know, and um, for, for mob, for Aboriginal people, and that's so central um, to our, our identity and, and kind of understanding our place in the world. And for me, I'm a guest, so, you know, I mentioned before I'm, I'm Yorta Yorta, but, um, you know, so that's two hours away from, from Melbourne where I live and work. And so, you know, part of my practice is always following the protocol um, here in Melbourne and, and working with traditional owners here, the Wurundjeri and Boon um, and ensuring that that cultural protocol, um, you know, is really a part of my practice, but also, I guess, connecting back to my own country is, is very important to maintain those connections and, and the sort of cultural strength that that brings me. Um, but, I, you know, thinking about locality in terms of collections, um, so much of my work in, in connecting community into the museum's collection. So the collection that I am curator of have around 4,000 objects and they range from, you know, the early 1800s right through to today. So um, a, big, a big part of my kind of collection strategy for the collection is addressing the gap of contemporary work, um, which I don't know if it's probably a common thing across museums, but certainly um, for the museum I work for, which is the oldest collecting institution in the state. Um, if you were to look at the collection, um, you might kind of think that the, you know, Aboriginal people aren't, you know, existing beyond the 1950s. So I'm really, you know, wanting to represent our living culture within this space um, as much as our, as our history. So locating um, community within the collection is, is really important, um, both in a contemporary sense, but also for mob and particularly children, like I've worked a lot with youth and, and Victorian Aboriginal um, childcare agency in connecting um, kids with the belongings that their, their old people made um, and, and using that as sort of a um, link to that cultural strengthening. So, you know, lo locating, um, the, the object from where, from the country it comes from, um, the community into that. And then also, you know, working with artists um, is a big part of that as well. There's, there's a lot of artists that um, come into the collection and, uh, you know, use, use that as sort of inspiration for their work. And, and again, this kind of cultural strengthening. So 
place is so innately connected to identity. Um, and within that is, is, of course, protocol, as I spoke to um, around working with the traditional owners, but also, um, yeah, in, I guess, connecting collections, connecting histories, um, location is, is everything. Yes. Do this. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like all three of you kind of share an interest in ensuring that your communities are reflected in the arts experiences that you're creating or in the collections that you're curating. And I wanted to pick up on something you said, Emma, about language as being one of those strategies that you use in order to kind of create that reflection um, and the idea of finding a language that uh, reflects some shared values. Because um, I'm always really interested in, in how uh, Indigenous worldviews are kind of interpreted and translated and, and spoken about. Um, and I wondered if you guys could maybe talk a little bit about um, how, how much of that languaging is really, like what role that languaging plays um, in your engagement with Indigenous arts. Um, yeah, that's a meaty provocation. Um, yeah, I think I, I think about the curatorial language. So how an exhibition is uh, framed, how it's delivered, how it's designed. But in that, the most important thing for me is who is the audience. And so uh, I am... I guess it's a form of activism, really, to to actively engage uh, non-traditional arts audiences in, from a Pākehā lens um, into exhibition making and, and gallery culture. So um, I am always thinking about my audience and have always been invested in uh, growing and celebrating and honouring the Pacific Islander audience for Pacific Islander art um, because... Um, what, f what it feels like in the art world is the, the more success you experience, uh, the further away you get from your people. Um, and an example of that, for example, it's so wonderful to see some new faces in the shows downstairs and the offerings of the art fair. And one of them is Raymond Sangapolutele, who's a Manurewa South Auckland-based artist. Um, and I would love for our communities to see you here because we feel a collective pride to have your representation in this space. So, but what happens is, you know, we know no one will come here. <laughs> um, but they'll watch the video um, and they'll watch our, you know, uh, social media and that kind of thing. But our communities um, have our backs and, and feel pride because as collective people, I think, you know, we take our people with us, but it's, it's awesome when they can actually also be in, in physical form in the room. Yeah. Just go, going from you saying that you know our people won't come here, you know that that's so harsh, but so no, but so true. No, I know, and it's the same. My audience with my gallery, it's you know, it's predominantly Pagia, um, you know, and they're my friends, and they 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 buy things, they support the artists, they they keep the ecosystem going, but to attract a brown audience is hard because how do you make them? feel comfortable in your space. You know, they're not used to engaging with that white cube 
carry on that we're, you know, we're kind of used to because we go to galleries, you know, if you, you know and it's, uh, um, it's difficult. I'm like, where's the Māori middle class? Where's the Pacific middle class who are coming in to, to actually go downstairs and, and look for artwork for their walls? <laughs> we didn't mean to look that way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to see some brown faces in this audience. Seriously, I know some of you were corralled in, but you know. <laughs> uh, and that's the, that's the dilemma for, I think, for both of us. But your, your audience is different. Your audience, it feels like you are attracting your people, our people. Yeah, I think the brown middle class or, or an art buying market within the Pacific and Māori audience is, is something that really excites me. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's sort of in terms of my business plan, it's kind of my target audience for uh, selling work. Mm. Um, mm. I love selling work to young professionals. Can I have your mailing list? <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, because I do things like um, lay-by <laughs> and yeah. people take a yes. while to pay things off and yes. uh, it's awesome. Um, mm. I love seeing work going into South Auckland homes mm. and South Auckland collections because that work and those ideas and the power of that work then circulates back within our communities yeah. and keeps on giving. Yeah. Um, but that's just, I mean, that's an audience that I actively work with uh, it's not my only audience. Um, I think there's value in what we do for much broader audiences. And, and in terms of internationality, the international interest, interest in what I do is a lot more potent than what it is within the New Zealand art world. Um, so I, I was interested in, in this conversation because, yeah, I, I get asked to talk about shows that I produce in Otahu and Papatoitoi in in... Hong Kong and Berlin, but rarely in central Auckland <laughs> or anywhere else in New Zealand. That's fantastic. You're, you're using your power for good and not evil. You know, you're, <laughs> no, you, you're, you're working for us over there. Yeah, no, it, and it's, those connections are hard, but you are super connected internationally. Um, I don't really have that. I've sort of got Australian connections, but um, it's... People, are, well, I think, will be looking more and more at Aotearoa and seeing how we manage things. You know, COVID we've managed well. Um, distance looks our way. I think that was, what was that show? That was a show in Seville during one of the, in the 90s, the New Zealand exhibition of artwork in Spain in the early 90s was called Distance Looks Our Way. And people are coming, um, wanting to see how we do it. So Emma's project is really inspirational, you know, and. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm still finding my way. I, I don't, I'm, I, th I think I'm on the right track, but I'm still feeling my way through. Mm. Yeah, that, thank you guys for segueing us into the internationality, um, because one of my questions was kind of like, what your guys' impression is of international demand for indigenous artists or methodologies even. And Kim, I wanted to ask you, because I know as a curator of collections, a lot of, Aboriginal Taongas held in overseas collections. A lot of them are held in Europe. Um, and I know that you've done a program, I think the Accelerate program. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that relationship between you know, international museums looking at Australia for expertise or kind of what, what happens there when collections are already international? Um. Sorry, I caught a little bit of that and someone's cutting a tree down the front of my house. So <laughs> apologies if it's loud. Um, 
Yeah, I, I've done quite a bit of work um, in international collections, uh, looking at southeastern Aboriginal materials. So that's um, you know New South Wales, Victoria, down down the southeast coast of Australia, um, and you know there was a huge amount of collection that that happened in the 19th century on ongoing really of our cultural material. And many of the things that the museums have, you know, in, in Europe and um, the UK, America as well, um, we don't even have as people ourselves anymore, um, or, or that practice is in the process of being, you know, revived. Um, so my work in going over there was to connect, you know, first and foremost, to connect to those objects from my ancestors. There's been cases where, you know, in um, in Scotland, in, in like the middle of Glasgow, um, in, in museums, you know, in all these random places where I've connected to objects from my country um, and I've been the first, you know, Aboriginal person that's touched them since they were kind of taken, um, you know, or, or collected from, from Australia and from, from their homes, you know, in, in 1840 or whenever it was. So there's this con sort of um, spiritual connection, cultural uh protocol that I go through when I'm going into these places to ensure that the, the object um, and uh, you know I'm sure people understand this sometimes when I talk about this especially in a uh, museum with anthropologists or whatever you know eyes roll but it's it's this is what how I've been taught um, from my family as well it's, it's very important to to honor and respect those objects and um, they they aren't just innate things sitting in a um, tomb you know they're they're actually alive um, and they mean something to our people so so connecting to them is really important then for me um, and part of my research with accelerate with the British Council and then I've done uh, further research after that as well is about understanding the relationship the institution has to the object so what does the curator or the keeper of that collection understand in terms of the living connections and the living culture that that object still maintains to community um, and then conversations of of loan of repatriation of of interpretation and that you know uh, emma you're talking about um you know voice or the curatorial voice and the institutional voice and that's really important you know like who's talking in these spaces and who's talking about our objects or or our, our art and how is it being represented um you know and in a lot of places i've been it might be the british museum although that's getting better but there's actually um gay skullthorpe is there who's a tasmanian aboriginal woman she's the senior curator of of that collection now so that's uh, getting better there but there's places that um just don't even interpret our history correctly uh let alone um you know in in a progressive contemporary way. Um, so there could be little changes like that made, but yeah, I'm kind of rambling now, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, I guess, um, the language, the international dialogue of between mob, you know, so, you know, Aboriginal people between, you know, mob from New Zealand, Maori people from New Zealand, or I've done work in um, Norway with Sami and First Nations Canada, you know, we're working together, you are at the moment on this deadly show um, with um, our First Nations kin in Canada. So like, what's what's the conversations and the language between mob at that kind of meta, like collective level, level um, in international forums? I'm kind of keen to explore that more. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the central questions for this discussion is like, what do our arts need to be supported internationally or outside of potentially their home contexts. 
Um, and those nation-to-nation -nation connections, are, I think, are a really interesting way of navigating that. And Tim, you've worked with um, Aboriginal artists and presented their work here, and I'm thinking um, of your show, is it Ngā Iwi Moi Moi A? Um, so I wondered if you could talk through what it, what it means to bring Aboriginal artists to an Aotearoa context and what kind of is involved in, in ensuring those works have as much support here in Aotearoa as they might have um, in their own homes or their own new lands. Mm, mm. Um, uh, Aboriginal art is, is still seen here as other. You know, it's like we New Zealanders don't really understand it very well, and they. Um, I, I think perhaps because we see a lot of dot paintings at airports, you know, and so there isn't really any connoisseurship here about what's good and what's not good. Um, so the work that I bring into the country, I. I have to. I edit it for our audience. I bring in work that I think New Zealanders will find an entry point with. Um, for example, the, the artists in, at Warman. Um, I remember having a light bulb moment at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and I saw this huge black and white painting by Mabel Julie, crescent moon and star. Um, uh, you know, we call them moon and star dreamings, but Gankini, Ngarangani in, in their um, Gija language from Western Australia, they're in the East Kimberleys. Um, and this, this painting just absolutely struck me. Um, it, it's at a formal level, but then when you start to think about what, what that painting was and the story that she was telling, her story, about the moon being a man and being in love with a particular woman that he wasn't allowed to marry because she was technically his mother-in-law. Very, <laughs> forgive me, Kimberly, the skin groups and the it's complicated relationships that, so he, he was very angry when the woman he loved he couldn't be with and he went up onto a mountain and he cursed the people and he said to them, you will all die. You're all going to die. You'll just be white bones. But I'll come back every month for three nights and I'll be with the woman I love. So it's this beautiful story that we, we all relate to at a human level and it's an ancient story that she's still telling. So although I was attracted to the work formally, I was pulled into her life and her people. And this is, you know, Aboriginal people have been making art for, you know, 60,000 years on that, on that island. Um, we're new here. It's really old over there. Um, so my, my job is to try and translate some of the connections for, for our people on this side of the ditch um, and to to show where we, you know, we're, we're cousins and we have so much to learn from each, each other. But I have, you know, a commercial imperative as well. I've got to, you know, it's hard. I mean, I'm downstairs in that <laughs> shark tank, <laughs> you know? And um, so I'm quite, it's quite nice being up here. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, um, 
So I kind of have to walk these two worlds. I want to do it, I want to do it properly. I want to honor the artist's work. I want to, to connect. Um, but I have to have a commercial head on as well to make sure that my gallery doors can remain open. And so, as I was saying, I, this black and white Mabel Julie painting, I thought New Zealanders do black and white. We know how to do that. We, we love that. And those, that, that painting got such a response when I brought um, some of Mabel's works into the gallery. And so this has been, her, this has been the way to get her work in and, and to get the, the, the other works by um, artists from Mormon in. Then I've gone on to other communities as well and I've kind of tried to find the things that I think New Zealanders will understand. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I love them all. And I hope that people trust my eye and sort of limited connoisseurship that I've built up so far over, you know, perhaps 10 or 12 years. Um, so that's how I see my job in that go. Yeah. Hmm. on a marae or a, a more um, natural kind of position. So one really good thing I thought about that exhibition was it explained to me through art, through contemporary art, the concept of the nothingness, the no, and I thought that was extremely effective. But I think what I'm asking is where indigenous or first people's art is being translated or created for a basically, I suppose, a European uh, context of a gallery or an institution, how does that collide or collaborate when some of those images or imagery might be quite sacred and yet they're going into a commercial space or they're being collected as some kind of um, ethnic object? I mean, what, I don't know what that road is. And, and, and I guess the other one on from that is who defines who is an indigenous artist in the Western sense? Is it galleries? Is it museums? Is it the community itself? You thought my questions were heavy. It's a multi-layer I think the incredible survey show at Auckland Art Gallery at the moment is uh, an important framing of how we see that exhibition is that Auckland Art Gallery's uh, commitment as a treaty partner means that that is not a European space, that Māori deserve to be there and that exhibition is long, you know, we've been waiting for a long time. Uh, the fact that they had Nigel Burrell curate that show for the last three or four years, I think, he's been working on it. It's the biggest survey show. It has over 300 artworks in it, over 100 artists. Um, the fact that he's been able to create the narrative that you encountered the exhibition uh, from Te Kore, you know, that, that's all pretty incredible stuff. Uh, he has been changing the system from inside. Um, 
So what he's been able to do with that work and with that exhibition is to create a Māori space within an institution that owes a debt to tangata whenua. So it's, it's a profound moment, that exhibition. And I know that for audiences I have spoken to, uh, they feel very present in that space. They feel like they uh, belong there because of that exhibition, because of the exhibition language, uh, because of Nigel Burrell's intention to make Māori audiences feel uh, like they are being honoured, that te ao Māori is being honoured through that act of, create, of curating an exhibition. Um, so exhibitions like that, leadership, curatorial leadership, like Nigel Burrell's leadership, um, changes the landscape of these, I think, uh, colonial institutions uh, that they are being forced into a place where they have to reckon with uh, the power imbalance that comes as a colonial hangover. I thought that the way it was curated was really one that it created curated by concepts or by you know particular um, moments. Um, I think what I was kind of trying to ask is, as an art, as an indigenous artist, uh, how, in terms of things, uh, you know, we're talking about tradition, um, protocol, you know, and yet. To be viable, it has to be translated into some kind of another lens to get viewed through another lens. Is that a conflict or is that a, a process where I can talk or you, one can talk about these issues in a way that it maybe is understandable to, you know, Palangi or Pakia? I, I don't know. Is that, a, is that something you think about, I suppose? I'm just going to quickly answer part of that, that um, the, there's a, a responsibility to show work uh, in a way that respects the work. You know, whether you're a Pākehā artist or a Māori artist or a Pacific artist, you have to show it um, with respect and I would say with aroha as well. Um, when... when when you're showing work by indigenous artists who, um, I'm thinking about some of the, 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 what you mentioned about sacred knowledge and here then it goes into a white gallery and then it gets, it's commodified. I mean, that's, that's the world, you know, it's awful. And I'm in that world, you know, I'm implicated. But I, when I'm showing a work by particularly the Aboriginal artists, um, I, the, the, that, that work that they send to me is probably their only source of income. You know, the, the, these remote Aboriginal communities are engaging with the market to support their whānau and their families and extended families. And in a painting that I might sell, you know, perhaps by Mabel Julie, the 60% that goes to her goes to the art centre. Some of that will come from the art centre to be cover materials, the rest will go to Mabel, and, but from Mabel it will go to probably, a, she's supporting a, a large whānau. Um, Kimberly, you're much more aware of how this sort of thing works. Yeah, can, so can you just, I, I've been catching bits and I can't actually hear the questions from the audience, but I, I heard something around 
yeah, the commodification of, of Aboriginal art when it's going into a commercial space. Is that is that the sort of question? Yeah, it's around around that area. Yeah. And and, and I, how ethically the, the work is sold and translated and how, how the money works with art centres. Yeah, I think also, um, you know, when it comes to Aboriginal art, whether that be Aboriginal artists like Mabel um, from, from remote communities or whether that be Aboriginal artists that are based in urban environments um, or, or urban, you know, the city, um, you know, like you just said, Tim, it is an economy. It is it is uh, a way of making money as much as it is a, a cultural, a creative expression. Um, and I think, you know, with, with regional artists coming in, um, you know, one can't assume that they don't have agency and that they're not um, in control of this as well. I mean, there has been, you know, of course, um, exploitation and everything that's happened in the past. But, you know, a lot of artists like Mabel, who was one of the, you know, best artists in Australia, <laughs> I love her work, um, got a Mabel in my bedroom, I won't show now, but, um, you know, she's she's wonderful. And, you know, they're, they're creating work because they want to share their arts practice and their, their cultural stories, but also, you know, they've got autonomy and agency over that decision as well. And, um, yeah, as long as that respect is taken in with the gallerist, but also the institution. Um, and it's not up to the institution to define what Aboriginal art is, although that has been a problem, um, particularly in the southeast of Australia, you know, for many years, Victorian and New South Wales artists weren't weren't acquired and weren't collected by major state institutions because they weren't seen as authentic enough. And, you know, the, the kind of real Aboriginal art was happening in, you know, yeah, the Western Desert or, or Central Desert or, or Northeast Arnhem Land. Um, and so that kind of representation has been a problem um, for years. And that's that's shifting, you know, quite dramatically now. And, um, you know, like urban art, arts artists from from the cities are, are sort of getting a look in into this space in terms of what is Aboriginal art but we define what Aboriginal art is the, the community define what our arts practice is and you know how we want to share our culture um, it's no longer the institution or the anthropologist or the the non-indigenous curator that you know has that control anymore it's it's shifting the power is shifting I think um, I don't know if that was in relation to what was being said, but I'm, I'm picking up on words. Yeah. yeah, that was that was really great, Kim. Because um, one comment I just the last comment was that um, it's problematic uh, to 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 see um, culture as a singular thing. That when it gets translated into and adapts and creates new senses of agency within institutions, it is still culture. It is a constantly evolving, re-manifesting beast. And it's problematic to ever think that uh, doing it differently um, is losing something. Um, because we, we're constantly evolving and adapting. We're incredibly uh, resilient, adaptive peoples. And uh, so what Nigel has done with the exhibition is um, created an exhibition language for, for that adaption uh, within that space. Um, yeah, I just, I think that's a really lovely comment about agency, Kim, thank you. Yeah, like and I think... Exhibition too, I think that some of the most successful pieces were 
the things that we're using, completely contemporary materials, mediums like video and things, you know, so that constant adaption, but re-purpose, reworking uh, traditional things, but in a totally different context. I, I think that was a really successful thing of that exhibition as well. Yeah. I, I have an artwork on my two screen prints downstairs on my stand by Nungana Marawili, who is one of the finest Aboriginal artists, uh, who's a bark painter pri primarily in, from northeast Arnhem Land. Um, and they have a, a policy, a kaupapa, at um, Buku, which is um, in Yukala where they work, that everything that they make must be come from the land. So they, they paint on bark, they use ochre. Um, it's natural materials, even paper. Um, but recently, some really like crazy colours have started to appear, like hot pink and cyan blue. And, and like, yeah. how does that square? And they said, oh, no, that comes from the land. This is recycled printer toner from landfill. <laughs> so they've found the wormhole in, and they're using this really contemporary material and this is what I, one of the things I love about Aboriginal painting. It's so versatile. There are so many different things happening all over that vast continent. I mean, we're tiny, tiny here, but there's so much creativity in so many different ways of making. And, and you know, making work on steel. I mean, this up in Yukala, they're particularly inventive. Um, but yes, contemporary materials. Would you go along with that, Kimberly? <laughs> Yeah, um, sorry, I didn't catch the last bit of that, but yeah, I, I did hear that. And um, Buku, like Northeast Arnhem mob are just doing the most incredible work and Nongringa, mm. you know, in her bark paintings, but then they've got this whole media centre that's attached to the cultural centre. Um, and there's a thing called the Molka Project, which is producing the most extraordinary filmmakers and new media artists as well for Australia. So, you know, Aboriginal art is not... Um, you know, not rooted in the historic past. It's it's informed by our history, um, but we are creating the most contemporary and, and you know, progressive works um, in, in the country. And I think, you know, going back to what you were talking about with Nigel's exhibition, um, which I haven't been able to see yet, but I've ch been checking out online. It just sounds and, and looks um, incredible. Um, but it's around like this idea of indigenizing space through our voice. And um, Stephen Gilchrist, who's a, a Yamachi curator um, in Australia, you know, he speaks, uh, has written a lot about, you know, creating spaces um, for Indigenous people, not just of Indigenous people. And that's, I think when that language shifts is when, um, yeah, we, we have our, our own voice within these spaces. And also, you know, Tim, going back to what you were talking about before in terms of um, um, Aboriginal art and, and also, you know, First Peoples art really. And, and we have a responsibility as, as curators and, and gallerists and people working in and out of the institution. Like I'm working also for a major state festival. So it's a very ephemeral kind of way of curating and, and working with artists, but sits out of that white cube space. Um, yeah, but we have a responsibility to, to actually educate the broader audience on what our artists are doing, you know, so it's not just, Aboriginal art isn't just all about dot paintings or, or you know, what, what people might assume to be that Aboriginal art is, you know, crazy light installations and, and whatever else, but um, that's kind of that, that role of the visual language that we can 
um, work with the artists. Um, yeah. Which is the same thing that's happened with Toy 2, Toyota, Nigel's show. It's not just Kofi-Fi. It's that whole gallery is filled with so many, like Māori art is at the centre. Mm. And, you know, the Pākehā art kind of is othered in that space at the moment. It's very interesting. Yeah. Can I, can I ask something uh, um, to all of you? Maybe just to speculate a bit more around the future, not looking at now too much or back, but uh, speculating more around the future. Because I, what I find so interesting is that you all are in a, also you, Kimberly, are all, you all seem to be in it very much for the long haul, right? So if we, if we think about collections, for example, Kimberly working in a museum, but also you, Tim, um, kind of really thinking through, okay, what is a long activity in which I work, right? So we're really wanting to um, kind of um, infect, if you will, or inject, I have to say. Not infect is really not a good word, but inject, inject uh, these, these works in people's uh, living room, right? I mean, that's kind of a clear goal. Or also with you, Emma, if you even think about like the, the small things that you sell or the kind of the, the, the long haul that you think about um, um, uh, uh, through your practice, but also actually, also you, you wanna thinking through your curatorial practice. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll, I'll make you um, an addition to this as well. But uh, um, can you speculate a bit more around the future and how important it is that if you build something up like a collection or a, or a thing that can, can can sustain itself over a longer term period, what happens when it starts to? Because the promise for 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 me in that is that a thing like that can travel, or the knowledge that sits within that can travel, right? We're talking about toy to toy aura, but one of the critiques that I would have of it, can, can we look at how much of that is acquired for the collection of, 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 of Toyotamaki? I think we'll find that when this exhibition um, goes down, very much of it, very little of it will remain in the collection, right? So how, how, how important are those kind of um, lengths of thinking? Uh, and can you speculate what that will do in the future, whilst we're now in, in an environment, of course, that we feel, that we think about the local and very um, um, short, temporary kind of ways in which we are not able to, 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 um, to connect to the world again, right? So for me, thinking about the long term and collections, for me, is like really an amazing opportunity to to reconnect to the world, right? So if, is that something that you could all speculate more about? Well, I, I think there has been a shift. Just with the opening of that single exhibition, it feels like there has been a shift. And I don't know what it is, but suddenly it's like this, um, it's like the, the, the veil has lifted and we can see work that we always, we saw bits and pieces here and there. And so it was sort of crumbs, if you like. Um, a little bit in a group show there, and there's a bit of this one. But suddenly there they all are together. And the, the sum is greater than the, what well, the total is greater than the sum of its parts. It has a power. And so this, this work by Māori artists has been looked at in a different way. And so it's a long game. The, the cultural change doesn't happen overnight, but I think a, a switch has gone on. And we'll be looking in a different way at um, the work of Māori and Pacific artists in, in this country. And I mean, Aboriginal artists, maybe not quite yet, but you know, I'm working on that. Um, but there's a, there's a, 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 
people are looking for something extra, and indigenous artists, I think, have, have a connection still to values that might have been forgotten. But even old, old knowledge is being re-evaluated. Um, yeah. Um, kind of forgotten the question, but um, uh, longevity. Yeah. Um, well, I, like I've been collecting art for about 20 years, and uh, I've just started to, well, actually during lockdown, I'm saying I've just rehung my collection at home and did some really bold curatorial <laughs> shows in each bedroom. Um, <laughs> um, but I also decided that it was time for some work to leave my collection. So found ways to rehome it. Um, and this is why I love selling art, because I love collecting art, I love buying art. So um, I think when I look at collections as a sort of archive, of time, um, I've collected, you know, my art history basically. Yeah. But I have uh, buyers who, when I was managing Fresh Gallery Otara, there was a, a wonderful buyer who'd buy every single. Uh, she'd come on the first day of every show, which was hard because it was the day after the opening, um, and she'd buy the work which we would promote the show with. And so I'd go to her house to deliver work every couple of months, and um, and she had collected my art history. Uh, really, every show I'd curated. I did 66 shows at Fresh, and she had uh, almost a piece from every show. So, um, yeah, I, this is what I love about, I mean, I love about the art market and the act of collecting, because yeah. I think in people's homes, we have these little insights into the worlds that they've intersected with, but for, you know, there's a pretty niche market for collecting contemporary Pacific art. Um, but, yeah, I think we, yeah, we, when you sort of tap into the, the domestic market for art buying uh, and don't think about the institutions and what they aren't and are doing, um, yeah, we've got little bubbles of collections and, and archives of our longevity and our, our presence all over the place. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. In terms of longevity, in terms of being a gallerist and a, an arts manager, um, I don't think I can do anything else. Um, I've burnt so many bridges that this is sort of where <laughs> I've ended up. So, I heard that about you. Kate Pai. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you repeat the question? Sorry. <laughs> What's the future? Uh, oh, gee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon the future, I want to see more like mob run galleries. Yes. Um, Kimber Thompson, who's an um, Aboriginal woman in Melbourne, she has a, a gallery called Black Dot Gallery um, and works really closely with uh, Pacific and, and Aboriginal artists. And that's really exciting to see um, that there's a, there's a gallery that's run by mob for mob um, in town. So I think definitely seeing more of that. And of course, more people in institutions. Like I'm, I'm the only Aboriginal curator for Museums Victoria, which you know, um, is difficult. But also, it's 2021, and I know you know the institution is is sort of trying to address that. Um, but this is not an isolated thing in Australia. There are very few Aboriginal curators, um, you know, across the board in institutions. So growing that and and kind of finding ways to to bring in. Yeah, new people in these spaces um, and, and communities is so important. So I think, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm really interested 
in kind of getting challenging and moving past this binary, like working in a museum, which is um, does have contemporary collections, but is more of a you know historical kind of museum. Um, but challenging this space of what's uh, you know museum and what's art gallery, um, because so much of what I do with the historical collections is uh, informing contemporary practice, um, and it's always been that way. And yeah, so kind of more mob pushing the boundaries um, in these spaces of, of museum and, and contemporary art. I'll just add on to that. Um, thank you, Kim. Um, one of the things that I would like to see in the future is, of course, the massive repatriation of Pacific cultural heritage, which sits in European museums and Anglo-American museums all over the world. Fijians are fortunate. We're the only country in the Pacific that has the largest collection of our own cultural objects in Fiji. Uh, but yeah. every other country in the Pacific, the majority of their taonga are in these museums, which um, are quite hard to access. Um, that story, Kim, you, you shared about being the, the first Aboriginal person who touched or engaged with these objects. When I engaged with our Fijian um, tattoo tools in Cambridge a couple of years ago, our largest collection of tattoo instruments sits in boxes in Cambridge. Um, we don't have the practice anymore. We don't have the cultural memory of the practice anymore. These objects are the anchors to yep. the revival They're that the we're key. trying to do. When, mm. when I encountered those objects, I felt like they'd been in prison. Um, what decolonizing the museum feels like it needs, you know, what, what that space feels like is that it's no longer about social inclusion strategies to get our communities into those spaces. It's about reckoning with uh, the theft and the mm. looting, which is the basis of a lot of those indigenous collections, uh, and, re and, and repatriating, uh, investing in those source countries um, mm. to enable them to house and home and reconnect those objects with the people they come from. So that's a really strong agenda for me, and, and Vengia tattoo practice has really taken me into that space. Um, and from some international talks, uh, being in Berlin talking about decolonizing the museum, um, there's this international movement of, of what does that look like, which is interesting, because I think the conversation in Germany is very different from the conversation that we can have in the British Empire. Um, yeah. but yeah, I think museums are trying to reckon with that at the moment. The, Orc, the uh, African Museum in Brussels, uh, I went to school next to it for 10 years of my life, and it's one of the most horrific examples of a museum with an African collection. Uh, I mean, Belgium's colonial impact mm. is horrific, but um, you know, th things are changing in the museum space, but they need to change radically. Uh, and it is about com source community-led uh, activity, I think. Mm. Yeah, Shift and we're, like communities are ready. We're ready. Like the thing that frustrates me, I think, you know, I've been um, working in this space now for about 12 years and, and there's been some movement like in, in, in the context of repatriation and, and museums opening up to that in, in the international context. Um, but it, it is it just takes so long and it's like, well, you've got to catch up to us because we're ready you know, in, in many cases, there's still work to be done, I think, um, in terms of keeping places and, and 
and communities being ready to take things home. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of work, but, um, you know, why, why is it taking years and years and years and years just to, even to have the conversation? Um, and, yeah, I'd like to see movement happening sort of faster in that space um, as well. Yeah. The conversation is also economic. Uh, the value yes. of those objects, the value of those collections is the reason yeah. those museums are open. The, right. Those collections are leveraged for loans, which fund new exhibitions, which fund new programming. Our cultural heritage is funding the museum sector in, mm. in a lot of different ways. Um, and that needs to be recognized in terms of recognizing the source communities of those objects. Mm. <laughs> She's wild. <laughs> but no, that thing, that thing that you said, um, Kimberly, about... Um, mob-led galleries, mob-owned galleries. It's telling, telling your own story in your own way, which Emma is totally doing in Papa Toy Toy, and, mm. and I'm doing in, in a way, in a more mm. kind of, I'm having to stand in two worlds with my own gallery. Um, but we have a, a gallery that's about to open here in, in Aotearoa, the Waro Māori Art Gallery in Whangarei. Um, at, we'll be opening at the Hundabasa Art Centre on December the 2nd. And I'm a trustee on the board for that. In fact, there's another trustee here. <laughs> Kia ora, Carl. <laughs> um, that's, that's the first public Māori art gallery that there has been. And look, it's 2021, it's taken so long, but at last we have a gallery. It's small, but you know, we'll mm. take it. And it's going to be for Māori artists and Māori curators. So for Māori, by Māori. And this is another um, example of the, the, the shift. There's been a shift, and I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. That's a great bombshell. That's a great, that's a great ending, I think. No, that's great responses. Um, uh, and I think, I mean, if there's, is there any more questions from the, from the audience? Ah. Uh, Emma, I just wanted to talk to you about art schools because obviously we met in an art school in South Auckland and um, it's awesome, you know, and I've seen you present internationally as well and it's fantastic what you've been doing with the gallery and you know I'm a big supporter. Uh, but I just wanted to ask you about the loss, the loss of the art school in South Auckland and, you know, how you think, because I guess uh, I see a lot of the crew around the gallery for you uh, ex-students from MIT and obviously there's a whole new generation as well but there's some really core people there that that went through MIT and got their art degrees there how do you think that's affected the community the fact that the art school isn't there anymore and and how do you think other art schools are doing uh, in that space that's a good question. Thank you, Anne. Um, we had a period of time, uh, an art period in South Auckland, where Monaco Institute of Technology, our, our dominant tertiary provider, uh, had a partnership with the University of Auckland, so delivered a Bachelor of Visual Arts program, which sat outside of Elam, uh, but part of the same extended family. Uh, and a lot of us went through this program. Um, the, it was a, called, uh, yeah, 
Monaco School of Visual Arts, uh, I think established in the late 90s. And um, when the University of Auckland uh, left the relationship with MIT, they tried to uh, evolve um, what was MSVA into uh, an MIT faculty called the Faculty of Creative Arts. Um, bringing it in line with MIT meant uh, transforming the program to be more aligned with a polytechnic academic framework. Uh, so technically, functionally, about training artists to get jobs, uh, which I think sort of reflects a bit of a shift in arts education over the last decade, perhaps. Uh, but the period of MSVA was really interesting because we were this Auckland University degree program in Otara, um, where we had lots of freedoms, um, we had a phenomenal staff body. Um, I always credit Paul Cullen for um, kind of facilitating my connection to Otara uh, because, of, because of the residency program um, that he led, uh, uh, working with artists with social practice in the early 2000s. And, you know, that was quite uh, boundary pushing back then, but through Paul and, and MSVA's leadership, bringing in artists who uh, could connect us as with students with the international art world, as well as with Otara as a site, uh, was really um, important. Um, and so there is this alumni of MSVA uh, who feel very sad that MIT has now cut all creative arts from their offerings as an institution. Um, but simply because I think <laughs> But, you know, we all know when you have come out of art school with an art degree, it does not equal jobs. <laughs> and so it was a problematic program for MIT because and you have on the same hand that they offer a, faculty, a Bachelor of Creative Arts, they offer a Diploma of Logistics, which has like a 99% employment rate on the day that you finish the course. And so a huge spectrum of difference. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, uh, as a community of graduates from MSVA who are still living in South Auckland, um, have definitely pulled together to share our grief um, for the end of that school, um, uh, to sometimes do drive-bys and have a box in the car park because it's still unlocked. <laughs> um, and I'm actually producing a show next month with um, Antonio Filippo, a Tokelauan graduate from MSVA, um, because, and last year produced the show with Ve and Emily Mafaleo. So we are building relationships um, because it's gone that maybe wouldn't have happened without its demise. Um, but a very important part of our art history in South Auckland, I know Whitecliffe has now got a base in Monaco. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know, the, the role of arts education in the South Auckland creative ecology has changed. Uh, the graduates that, that came out of MSVA ended up doing all sorts of things. I mean, Antonio Filippo came out with a Bachelor of Visual Arts and went and worked for Trade, um, trade and Exchange magazine. <laughs> like the... the, the the amount of graduates who actually went into arts-related employment was uh, mixed. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, having places like Fresh Gallery Ōtara, Vuni Langi we bring them out of the woodwork and they come back and we're actually showing a, a beautiful series of Antonio's um, drone photography of Ōtara at a new coffee shop in Ōtara called the Alexander Cafe, um, just to again recognise the site and the space of Ōtara as where MSVA, you know, nurtured our practices. So. We're still around, um, but it's, yeah, I grieved hard for its closure. Um, but I also did a guest lecture to the Faculty of Creative Arts um, before its demise, and it was at, um, they moved over to North Campus. It was in a classroom that was normally used for like, a, you know, counting or something, and it was the most depressing thing I've ever done. So I was sort of like, it should die, because this is no longer a creative arts school. So, you know, sometimes it's good. Renew, refresh. <laughs> Great, thanks. Thanks, Emma, for that. Um, if there's no more questions, um, then I um, think we should draw to a close because I think um, you've deserved a drink. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I really want to thank you, Ngamihi Kiyakoto. Ngamihi Kiyakoto, on the... Can you hear me? Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank we did you. quite well on the technical um, front, I think. So thanks for bearing yeah. with us. Um, thank you, Emma, Tim, and Joanna for have, doing a wonderful job um, here. And thanks so much for all of the amazing work that you do um, um, way beyond this panel. So thank um, you. So tomorrow we're, we're back, um, same time, uh, same channel. If Ngahiraka uh, Mason talking, um, Cameron is talking tomorrow. Um, and uh, Nigel Burrell and Ashley uh, Taupaki. So join us tomorrow if, you, if you're here. Um, for now, have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you.